Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Yotam Odolenghi is the author of Plenty, Plenty More, and also Jerusalem. In his latest work, Sweet, he mixes up the desserts of Northern Europe with the complex flavors of the Middle East. One of the things that we're credited for in making Middle Eastern food more popular is the way we have kind of changed the look. So things that would probably be gray or, or brown We've garnished to emphasize color in order to allure people and tempt them into trying and eating things. Before I chat with Yotam, I have Helen Rosner here today. She's the former editor-at-large of Eater, a food journalist and also former co-host of the Eater Upsell podcast. Helen, how are you? I'm great. So what is the Eater Upsell? And how come you get to interview all these really cool people? The Eater Upsell is Eater's podcast. And, you know, at at Eater, we talk to interesting, cool, smart people in and out of the food world all the time. And we decided what if we got these really cool folks in a studio and dug deep into creativity and business and where your strength and weaknesses come from as a chef or a restaurateur or just a really successful eater. You also have written some pieces. You wrote one that I thought was fascinating called This Buttercream Kills Fascists. It was based in part on Tina Fey, who did that sheet-caking episode on Saturday Night Live. Could you just describe what that was and then a little bit about your story? Sure. So, you know, after um, Tina Fey did a segment on on a a special weekday episode of Weekend Update a couple of weeks ago, I, I think her intent with this segment was to talk about how overwhelmed, just like completely emotionally overwhelmed, a lot of people are feeling looking at the political landscape right now. It was it was right after Charlottesville happened. And 
right after we were sort of facing this idea that that Donald Trump had equivocated responsibility in in a protest between white supremacists and people who were saying white supremacy is bad. And she suggested that people just eat their feelings. So as a segment, it was embraced. And then there was a lot of backlash from people across all sorts of demographics who felt like the thrust of what she was trying to do there may have been admirable. But in practice, what she was really saying was like, hey, if you're a white person who is overwhelmed by politics in America, just stay home and eat cake and let people who are in more immediate danger put their bodies on the line. So I wrote this this piece where I, I wanted to kind of pull back a little bit from the conversation of intent when it comes to satire. I think that the people who were critical of her segment were absolutely correct. And I also think that the people who took it on face value took it the way she wanted it to be taken. And I wanted to point out that cake and pastry have been used as tools of protest in a lot of different contexts. There was, a, you know, my favorite thing that I uncovered while I was researching this story was um, this uh, <laughs> this uh, 1990s sort of vaguely like anarcho protesty group that took a lot of inspiration from the Zapatistas. They called themselves the Biotic Baking Brigade. <laughs> and they basically went around throwing pies in the face of people that they thought oh, were yeah. Yeah. antipathic to the cause of um, environmental progress and environmental activism. And, and as a, a sort of loosely knit together organization, they also took retroactive credit for any pie that had been thrown in the face of a powerful figure ever in history. But I also pointed out that in the wake of Tina Fey's segment, a lot of bakers felt very galvanized. Um, people whose actual professions are to make and sell cake suddenly had a very recognizable, nationally understood reference point to infuse activism into their jobs. A lot of bakers were suddenly taking the extraordinarily risky, very admirable move of announcing that they did not believe in the white supremacy that was being embraced by our administration, that they rejected it. You're an interviewer, but you're also a writer, a reporter, uh, editor at large. The argument is, I hear all the time, is people really don't want to read anymore. And they they don't want challenging, in-depth writing. Uh, I don't agree with that, but I, what, do you, what do you think? I mean, I agree with you. I think that, you know, reports of the demise of the written word have been greatly exaggerated. Right. I think that readers love to read. And, you know, the, we, we could spend hours talking about the seismic shift that happened to the world of media when the Internet became... A, not just a popular aspect of it, but the dominant aspect of it. But, you know, I I have always felt that the thing that matters at the end of the day is not where the story appears. If it's a video, if it's a podcast, what matters is the story itself. So talk about Eater.com just for a second. I mean, just, just summarize, what is it you guys are trying to do and where are you headed with it? So we have Eater.com. We also have two dozen city sites. So in Boston, in New York, in San Francisco, in San Diego, in Minneapolis, you can find the eater of your city that tells you what's happening in a local restaurant scene, who's opening where, what chefs are moving around, what are the hot places you should be having brunch, what are the cool places you should be getting a secret cocktail. Um, And then we also talk about broader food issues that don't necessarily have a specific local aspect. We interview big chefs. We chronicle the culture of food. We do a lot of business reporting about things like fast food and chain restaurants. We cover cookbooks and food books. We have a podcast, The Eater Upsell. We talk to people like you because you're going to come on The Eater Upsell. (laughs) Um, Helen, thank you so much. I, I love it that you're a defender of intelligent journalism. Uh, which makes me think I'll still have a job in 10 years. 
I think journalism is here to stay. I Look, I, th I think it's just always changing and change is scary. That was Helen Rosner, former editor-at-large of Eater. Milstreet Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Right now, my devoted co-host Sarah Moulton and I will take some of your calls. Sarah Moulton is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready for a new batch of uh, a phone call? Yeah, let's take some calls. Welcome to Mill Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Lucy, and I'm calling from Anaheim, California. How can we help you? All right. Well, um, my question is about chicken stock. The problem I'm having is I usually just go about the usual way of making mine, and the problem comes when I freeze it. When I go back to take some out, it freezes in this odd shape, like it, and it bursts out of the container, even though I'm not overfilling it. You mean it comes out the top, it pops the top off? Yeah, sometimes it pops the top right. off. I started out by putting it in Ziploc bags, but that made a mess horribly. Well, have you tried filling it less? I mean, like filling yeah. the containers two-thirds up or something? Yeah, and though it doesn't burst out, it's almost like it's coming up from the middle. It you know expands. what? That's a good point. I've but seen, But I've frozen chicken stock, and the top of it is not even, right? It has right. a weird craggy, irregular top. That's true. Right. I mean, it expands. Right. But the reason is, why doesn't it expand in a uniform way? Right. I guess my other question is, why do we really care? <laughs> <laughs> Lucy, well, there we are, Lucy, folks. I'm just wondering, why do you care? <laughs> well, I just want to make sure that I'm not doing something oh, wrong. Oh, no. You're not doing no. anything wrong. And it's I think common. it's... I meant to say, when you started with, I make my own chicken stock, to say, bravo, that's fantastic. Good for you. I would have one suggestion. I would freeze it in two cup amounts. Yeah, because that's probably how you're going to use it. Because that's how you use it. So you don't have to defrost the whole quart or something. So I, uh, two cups for me would be the typical amount. Yeah, and I used to also put it in ice cube trays. I've done that, that too. Because yeah. that would leave it open, but then... You know, I'm left with a bunch of ice cube trays that are oddly shaped. <laughs> you know, the other thing you could do if you're going to do ice cube trays, this is very French, so Chris, close your ears, is take <laughs> your strained chicken stock and reduce it down until it's very thick. You know, a chicken gloss would be the French term. And then freeze that in ice That's cube amounts. Idea. Because now you've got intensified broth, you know, so all you'd need is like a cube and a, That's let's say you're making a quick idea. sauce with sautéed chicken and then you take it out and you deglaze the pan with a little white wine, throw in a cube or two and, and you're ready to go because it's already been pre-reduced and it's intense in flavor and really delicious. Sarah, that's your best idea all day. Oh, I'm glad you approve. <laughs> well, the other thing you can also do is simmer or sub-simmer a bottle of wine like a Cote de Rhone and get it down to, you know, a very small amount and freeze that. You can add that concentrated wine to oh, the so sauce there you go. as well. So Double that's wine. a good idea. Instant dinner. Wow. Well, yeah, I'm definitely going to try that. One other thing. When you cool the stock, don't cool it for more than two hours at room temperature and put it on a cooling rack. They get air circulation okay. underneath it, and it will go down in temperature about as fast as if you put it in the refrigerator, oddly enough. And will oh, not really? heat up the whole And will not heat up the refrigerator. The so, so two hours on a cooling rack, and then put it in the freezer or whatever. But don't leave it for more than two hours at room temperature. That's all. 
Okay, well, definitely. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, thanks. I mean, this is fantastic. Okay, Lucy, thank you. Take care. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure, a conundrum, or a complaint, or if you just want to try to stump us, give us a ring. 855-426-9843. 855-426-9843. Or you can email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? This is Ellen calling from Santa Fe. So how can we help you? Well, uh, I have a question about parsley seeds. I have a parsley, couple parsley plants that have gone to seed, and I know parsley is related to celery. And so I was thinking possibly I could use the parsley seeds in cooking in some way, in some culinary manner. So I've looked everywhere, and I've called spice companies, and nobody seems to know if you can use parsley seeds, and if so, how. What do they taste like? Well, I didn't taste them because I wasn't sure if there was some kind of something Oh. In the parsley plant that's concentrated in the seeds that's toxic, you know, I don't really know. I just thought maybe you might know if there's some culture that has, you know, used parsley seeds. I'm not trying to kill off our listeners. <laughs> it's probably I know. a bad suggestion. <laughs> but um, assuming they're edible, I have no idea. I yeah, use fennel seed a lot. You know, and you use celery seed. And celery seed, and, right. And, you know, you know, I was thinking, gosh, I could make pickles and put the heads in there, you know, like I do with dill. But I thought... It's so weird that I'm not finding any culinary use for it on the Internet. I bet. Assuming they're edible, which you'd want to make sure, I wonder if they have any flavor. I mean, fennel's very strong. Dill's very strong. I wonder whether parsley seeds actually have flavor. I know my friend Jean Anderson always used to say, call your local extension service. Oh, that's a good idea. And find out the question about whether they're lethal or not. And then I agree with Chris. Just taste it. I've rubbed them between my fingers, you know, and smelled them, and they smell real Strong, oh, strong oh exciting. Smell. Yeah. So find out the answer to the first question and then let us know, and then we'll start cooking with them. Okay, great. I I'll, like I'll this. try my pickles. I'm anxious to I use dill, you know, in my dill pickles. But sure. I, I could use the same. This is definitely a case where you want the answer to the first question before the answer to the second question. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. that's true. You don't want to mix up the two and one. No, no, thing. no. But so. do let us know. I will. Yeah. No yeah, toy that, to play I've with. Never, I've, I've never thought, thought maybe of maybe there was some remote tribe somewhere and who knows where that use parsley seeds and you know about it, but I guess not. And they all live to be 125. Yeah, something <laughs> yeah, like that. Right. Exactly. You know, I did read that parsley, if you eat too much of it, can be toxic if you're pregnant. Well, uh, I was thinking that maybe, you know, the seeds might Maybe it would have a concentration of that particular yeah, whatever, chemical. whatever yeah. that is. Toxin. Yeah. Okay, well, I've never thought of this and uh, we will go check this out. Yes. I have, like, you know, these giant plant of parsley seeds, and I keep thinking, oh, they're so pretty, you know, I must be able to use them somehow. As as they always say, we'll be right behind you. (laughs) We'll be right there supporting you. (laughs) I'll let you know. Let us know. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Yotam Odolenghi, author of the new cookbook, Sweet, Vibrant Desserts That Melt Sugar, with the flavors of the Middle East, coming up after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Milstreet Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Yotam Odalengi is an Israeli-born chef. He's a cookbook author and also a restaurant owner. He's the author of Plenty, of Plenty More, and also Jerusalem. His latest cookbook, Sweet, combines the desserts of France and England with flavors from around the world. I have to start with a thank you, which is, you know, Milk Street that I founded a year or so ago was really dependent a large part on cooking out of your books. Really? Um, yeah, it really changed how I thought about cooking. I mean, there's the obvious, which is that you can use two cups of herbs, you know, <laughs> <laughs> with a bunch of lentils, and then you could mix and match flavors and textures. But I, here's my question. What I think is really going on, and you certainly were the first person to, to get at this, is the whole idea of what is cooking is very different. Because I, I grew up with Northern European cooking, which is a very different, philosophically very different than what you have done in some of your books. Could you just talk about that for just a second? Uh, I guess you're right. I think I think um, it's got to do with hierarchy. I mean, in a sense, um, I think what I've done or I had a bit to do with is the change of hierarchy on many levels. I think one of them is the proportion um, of meat to vegetables that right. we eat. So there used to be, a, in the old days, and I think in some households still probably today, in many, meat was on top and then all the rest was there just to kind of garnish it or, or adorn it. You know, there was a bit of vegetable here or there. But I think this is really changes. Maybe it hasn't reached everywhere, but it's definitely taking root in various places where the vegetables are in the centers or, or other legumes, you know, lentils or grains. Uh, really, I, I see what people eat. I see what's on supermarket shelves and shop shelves in general. And it, it just changed. The hierarchy changed from mo mostly meat eating to more vegetables. And then there is also with the flavors, something has changed. And that's a bit more difficult to spot. But I think people are looking for 
freshness in terms of what what is being delivered to the palate. You know, you mentioned two, two cups of herbs. I think spices, spice mixes. You know, there's much more openness to the food of the Middle East and Southeast Asia, which are just really intensely flavored and seasoned, you know, with spices, with herbs, with long cooking, or even with short cooking, with just with marinades and salsas. So these are the two areas that I think things have really changed uh, over the last decade or two. So now you're doing desserts, a new cookbook called Sweet. Uh, fabulous book, fabulous cover. But, I, you know, I do have a question, which is that most of your plenty, Jerusalem, et cetera, were based on the cooking of the Middle East, at least to a large extent. But when you get to desserts, the Northern European tradition of desserts, of course, is extensive. But desserts not a concept that's as popular, uh, or it's quite different in the Middle East. So yeah. in this book, you really did go back to a lot of French, English, et cetera, uh, recipes, and then did wonderful things to them. But but you're sort of changing your focus in terms of what kind of recipe you're starting with, aren't you? That is correct. I mean, my cooking over the years have been influenced by my childhood growing up in the Middle East, you know, in Israel and with the Palestinian um, influences on the food. And then traveling around first west into North Africa and then east into, you know, Iran, Persia, India, Southeast Asia and kind of finding affinities throughout to use in my cooking. I have to say that, you know, Jerusalem is very much deep, deeply rooted in the Middle East, but plenty and plenty more are have a much more international scope. With sweets, it's absolutely true that uh, Helen and I, Helen Go is my co-author on this book, have really focused on the techniques of European, basically, techniques, French, right. Italian, Northern European, and some of the Anglo-Saxon world, because Helen grew up in Australia, and there's a good, very deeply ingrained baking tradition there as well. But we haven't really, it's not full of baklavas and babkas and things you'd imagine that are typical sweet of, you know, where I come from, because this is actually how I've been trained. I haven't baked before I've become an adult. So I've been trained on the on a French tradition, really, basically. But we bring in our flavors in. So if, for instance, you know, there is lots of uh, figs and pistachios right. and rose water and cardamom in the book. There's also tahini and halva. So, and he- from Helen's perspective, there is, you know, pandan and star anise and pineapple. So we bring in our flavors, but we kind of almost garnish European cakes with, with our set of flavors, and it works really well for us. Wait, why do you think, I don't know the answer, why, why do you think that Northern Europe has such an extensive uh, sugar, as you said, you almost called the book sugar, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> I would just, just let people have it right in the nose. Sugar. Um, why do you think sugar was so important and desserts were so elaborate in Northern Europe, whereas most of the rest of the world, Asia, Middle East, North Africa, South America... Desserts just it's a, it's not as central to the culinary arts. What, why do you think that's true? This is quite new, actually. I think this is goes back maybe 150 or 200 years, and it has. I think a lot of the desserts that we know today, first of all, evolved in central and northern European courts, where cakes have been really a kind of a way of showcasing um, 
the abilities of the pastry chefs of the time, you know, both in France and in and in Britain and other bits of Europe. So, you know, when you've got a lot of uh, resources to spend on something, then you go kind of over the top. And desserts were the place where you could really go over the top with, you know, with sugar sculptures. And so all that playfulness is, is goes back to the traditions of courts. But later on, you know, into the 20th century, it was a place where home cooks could really show what they could do. I mean, um, with cheap ingredients, relatively cheap and accessible ingredients, eggs, sugar, flour, and and butter is really all you need to make an array of cakes. So people could play around at home and create super, you know, wonderful things with with relatively easy to source ingredients. So that's, that's for me how it evolved. But but some cultures, I just interviewed the author of The Palestinian Table. She mm-hmm. said her father for dessert or at the end of a meal would have bread and olive oil. And that's how and that's how he ended his meal. So the idea of ending the meal with some huge amount of sugar is not true for most cultures. No, and it's not necessary either. I think I have read all sorts of theories over the years why we have developed that sequence, you know, from savory to sweet. And I know that a lot of people turn that on its head and like to have sweet in the middle or break a meal with a, you know, with a refreshing sorbet and can move on and have cheese at the end of the meal. I think it's pretty arbitrary right. when you're going to have your sweet. But we all have sweet tooth. So th- I think right. in every culture, even in Palestinian culture, you'd have a moment for, for sweet. You know, the Palestinian cooking has a massive array of sweets. They're just eaten various other times of the day. Or, in a, you know, there's kenafe, which... It's a layered of shredded kadaifi pastry with goat's cheese or other cheeses, and then it's uh, soaked with a sugar syrup with rose water or orange blossom. It's a wonderful thing. It's hyper-sweet, uh, and it's delicious, but they could have it throughout the day. So let's get to your book, uh, Sweet. So a few things. It's gorgeous. The Thank cover, you. of course, you have that signature white background, beautiful colors. And you said something in the book was interesting. You said you got worried halfway through the project you didn't have enough color. Uh, And so you ran off to get some berries and stuff. So is that, (laughs) you know, at Milk Street, we we have the same issue because we often, food's brown, right? Or, you know, a lot of it. And so we go like, well, how come that picture is kind of dull? And someone says, well, because all the the ingredients are brown. So (laughs) when you do, and you obviously... Have are famous for a number of things. One is your wonderful takeout with all the platters. You have to be concerned about how it looks and color. Is, is that important to you in all of this? I think for some, like you say, in my uh, cafes and restaurants in London, we often have a display, and I just knew, you know, I had a look at the at the cash register at the end of the day, and you can see what sells, and right. I so I have that some kind of sensibility or sensitivity to what sells, and I know that things that look good sell. And so Sami Tamimi and I, Sami is my co-author of Jerusalem and other books, have always had that kind of sensitivity to to color. Things need to look right in order to sell. And one of the things that we're credited for in making uh, Middle Eastern food more popular is the way we have kind of changed the look. So things that would probably be gray or or brown, we have... um, Garnished. I mean, garnish is is quite a narrow term, but you know, we added lots of things to it, like sumac onions or 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 salsa, like a germolata, or char grilled vegetables to create a certain degrees of different color within a vegetable. So we've really tried to emphasize color in order to allure people and tempt them into trying and eating things. And the same applies for this book. So you know, cakes are just normally brown. 
And it's a problem when you want to create a very colorful book. And for me, books have always been colorful. And uh, so I called Helen, my co-author, halfway through, <laughs> through the book. And I said, look, Helen, we've got a problem. This book is brown and I want color. And Helen said, well, you know, leave it to me. And and what we did is often something which is just a small thing. For instance, if our, we're talking about financiers, so we added a colorful, you know, blackberry icing or we introduced a cake that is not a very Ottolenghi cake because it's got buttercream and we don't use buttercream very often, but it's a, it's a vertical striped cake which has got black currants and lemon. It is Ottolenghi in the sense that it's got a lot of flavors. So it's got lemon and black currant and, and those are kind of contrasting, but it's got also the color that I wanted, you know, those stripes of, of pink and, and yellow or purple and yellow. So whenever we could, we added color. And I think it really makes a difference for a book to have to have those colors. Is is it weird for you that your name has become a thing? Because you say Autolenghi, not, not in the third person, but there's a style of cooking and an approach to food, which is now it, labeled Autolenghi. It must very, be a, a bit weird for you. <laughs> it's very weird. It's very weird only in the sense that it's kind of I have to adhere to a set of principles that are not necessarily <laughs> come from me anymore. I mean, I... I what happens is sometimes you know, we make something really delicious in my test kitchen and I go, oh, my God, let's let's publish that. And some of my colleagues say, but that's not very Ottolenghi. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, it, you know, it, it's it, I raise an eyebrow and say, what do you mean by that? I That's me. But what they mean is that, you know, it has to have a certain vibrancy. It has to have a certain element of surprise. It can't just be um, operating on one level, whether visually or, or in terms of flavors. Um, One of the trends, and you do this really well in the book, is introduce people to different flowers. I mean, I think all of us who bake have gotten sick and tired of all-purpose flour. And I know Claire Patak at her, you know, Violet Bakery in East London does it, and you certainly do it in this book. Buckwheat, rye, whole wheat, almond meal. Could you just talk about that? Because that yeah, it, it's, it's this is something that I'm. It's not even represented in this book as much as I wanted. I think I'm working much more since you know this book has been. The recipes have been finalized about a year ago, right. and what I find really interesting over the last, I'd say, not more than five years, is this real interest. I mean, people realize that flour has flavor. I heard Dan Barber talk about it not too long ago that, you know, on a radio show saying, you know, we really need to regain the sens- sensibilities that we had in terms of how we judge flowers because they do have flavor. And the way, that we, the way we've kind of neutralized it with all-purpose flour is fine when, you know, when we have fruit and we add, we add spices, etc. But it's really fascinating to see when you work with other flowers how it could affect, affect cakes and other, other baked goods. Something else in the book, which is very uh, English or French, I think, which I love, is individual cakes instead of one large cake. Uh, Could you just talk about that? Because that's Uh, a charming way to serve dessert. Very much so. Uh, And it's also very Australian. And and like I said, Helen Goh, who's co-author, is is from Malaysia and Australia. And I, I, I see it as a way of making things seem a bit more manageable than they are. So, you know, when you have a big cake, it looks maybe slightly intimidating. When you have your own little cake, a friand or, or, or it's financier, they're small and manageable. But it's also about the qualities, the inherent qualities of a small cake. So you've got a different proportion of outside to inside. And it's very 
uh, it's very um, crucial to a, an old French cake uh, called financier, which is essentially an almond-based cake which has got melted butter, often burnt a bit, so it's got that kind of uh, slightly uh, burnt flavor. And that cake has a really sticky outside, almost chewy, and a soft center. Uh, if you make a financier in a big tin or in a big mold, then you don't get that perfect proportion between the, the, the chewy and the soft center. And that really does affect small cakes. And also in terms of icing, when you ice a small cake, you've got more ice because you've got less surface. Uh, so you've got more icing per bite. So you really can work about the qualities of eating. Plus it looks super cute. So I think that's those are the two factors that really make you want to make me want to make small individual cakes. What what are a few of the ingredients that the typical home baker could bring in? You know, tahini for example and brownies, uh, we've done that recipe too. It's it's nice cuz it's sort of bitter, it goes with the sweet. Rose water and orange water are classic flavorings. Are there mm-hmm. a few others you might recommend to people for home baking? Well, one one of the more exotic ones is called maleb. It's in our recipe for the Persian love cake. Those are also little individual cakes. And they've got buckwheat flour as well in them. And maleb is essentially uh, crushed up cherry stones. It's a particular cherry. And it's got a slightly different variation on a, on a bitter almond flavor. And that's a really great ingredient to use in desserts because, you know, when you cook sweet, it's quite nice to bring bitterness in because it kind of counteracts that kind of cloying, overly sweet flavor. So buckwheat flour is also interesting. Buckwheat in general, it's uh, it's again, it's very savory. And when you add savory aspects to sweets, it really makes you think, makes you think not intellectually, but just like really enjoying something in the mouth. And Helen and I also love using uh, hard herbs. We have thyme and rosemary and sage in different in different contexts. Again, it is just that kind of little bit of question that you ask yourself. We've got a treacle tart. Treacle tart is a very British thing. I've never I've never come across it until I came to the UK, and it's got treacle and breadcrumbs, and it's it's really kind of rich, super super rich and deep. And we do we just add a caramelized sage leaf on top of that tart. And it changes it completely. It gives it a certain freshness that can only, you know, a herb can bring and turns it on its head. Okay, so I want to get into your head a little. So uh, <laughs> it's Tuesday night. I don't know what you do about dinner these days. You have, you know, a couple of kids, whatever. It's probably <laughs> very different than it was a few years ago. But Definitely. but my guess is the what goes through your head, your mind, about what dinner is and how to prepare dinner and what the choices are given a fairly limited time schedule, is very different than most people. So how would you think about getting home at 5 or 5.30? I don't know. You have restaurants. Maybe you mm. don't. But how, how do you think about an hour to put dinner on the table? For you, what is dinner? What, what does that mean? I don't think that it's that different from what many people do because often in our house, you know, we're all busy and we've got very young kids and kids have a more sensitive palate and I'm not, I never try to fight that. I kind of try to go along. So, you know, very often it's it's pasta sauce and, and and pasta and cheese because that's what they love. And even in our house, people say, oh, in the Ottolenghi households, kids must be eating <laughs> things that are way more exotic. But no, because I don't want to force it. They do. They do get exposed to many more things. But o- often enough, you just want to give them what they like. And but what I like to do when I want to uh, cook something which is quite quick, I make a classic Arab dish called majadra. 
and it's very prominent in Palestinian cooking. It's rice lentil, but what it has that really draws in the the, the kids is fried onion because right. fried onion is just delicious. It's sweet. And you make your rice, you make your lentils, you know, these are very quick. And all you need to do is chop onion and fry it. And it's something you can do within 20 minutes to half an hour. And this is always a winner in our house. What, what do you think is going to happen a generation from now? Do, do you think the idea of isolated, you know, ethnic recipes from different cultures gets blended into something more worldly, like the fashion and music business? Or do you think that individual pockets of, of repertoire, culinary repertoires will remain intact? Uh, I think the former. I, I mean, I just see myself and people around me. I mean, we're everybody's seeking the next new regional cuisine, and there's just not there's just a very limited resource. You know, it's a limited resource. How many cuisines can you discover? So, in the sense, I think there is there's going to be less and less to discover in terms of local cuisines. However, I think cooking will become much more personalized because people do look for the personal touch much more than the kind of the... So there is a sense of communal trends or international trends, and then you go on uh, social media or go to any outlet of um, you know, food information, and you do feel things becoming more and more similar. But then you find really clever people who do things differently, and those are the sources of inspiration to the next generation. As uh, Someone who just happens to come across something that is is very clever or is very unique or is very different and they are they're just inspiring and you know and you see that whether it's in upscale restaurants but also in in trucks or in street food when was the last time someone invited you over for dinner <laughs> that happens all the time really? i love to be yeah because i'm a very easy guest you know i'm I, i'm greedy by nature so i'm very happy to eat anything i mean I know a good thing when I have it, but I'm not too picky. I can eat food anywhere. I eat on airplanes. You're so easy, man. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, no one invites me over for dinner. I think that that's telling between the two of us. Um, <laughs> oh, I gotta really? work on I, so that. I, sh- I should invite you next time you come over to London. And you always have an invitation in Boston. Yeah, Tom. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Book Suite is just absolutely fabulous, of course. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Chris. That was Yotam Odalenghi, author of the cookbook, Sweet. You know, I met Yotam four years ago when he was visiting the States, and that meeting actually changed my culinary life. I soon traveled to London to dine at his restaurants, also to sample his takeout. I cooked from his cookbooks, Plenty Jerusalem and also Plenty More. Yotam taught me that American cookery is just one very small part of the culinary world. Other places break all the rules to produce vibrant, colorful food that is actually less work and more flavor. So today, when a recipe calls for just a sprig of time, I always think of Yotam Odolenghi. As he might say, a sprig is never enough. Right now, I'm heading over to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Milk Street's editorial director, J.M. Hirsch, about this week's recipe. J.M., how are you? All right, how are you doing? Good. You uh, went to the Middle East recently, uh, Tel Aviv, Palestine, in search of the best hummus. I did indeed, and it was amazing. It was amazing. We published it in the magazine. Uh, But you came back with some other things as well, including a recipe for sumac chicken. Now, obviously, I've heard of sumac, but I've never heard of sumac chicken. So let's start with the question. 
What is sumac? So sumac is a dried berry, and historically, even here in the United States, it was used as a souring agent, uh, the same way we would use lemons now. And in Europe, that's what, it was, that's what its purpose was before the lemon was introduced. And it's particularly popular throughout the Middle East and in Palestine. Now, I know this is going to shock you, but I was in a bar one night in Tel Aviv, and I discovered what is simply the best bar food I've ever had. It's called moussaken, or as we say, sumac chicken. And it is this stuffed, warm pita pocket with this amazingly rich shredded chicken studded with onions and pine nuts and these weird red flecks, which I didn't know at the time was sumac. And it was this incredible exotic push and pull between something like really rich and familiar, yet something different and, and light and bright. And I had no idea what this was. I just know it went really well with the beer. So the next day, I headed down to Ramallah in Palestine to learn how to make this. And it turns out it's actually a celebratory dish. It's part of the olive oil harvest. And, and I think if you were in Palestine, they would say that the key ingredient is the olive oil. I felt it was the sumac because they use it by the fistful. And it was mm. utterly amazing because it takes a dish that otherwise would be very heavy and very rich because there's a lot of tahini in this dish. And that gives it a lot of oomph, a lot of heft to it, and a lot of richness. And the sumac cuts through that and brightens up the whole thing. And it is truly an amazing dish. You know, in Palestine, it's a, like a four or five hour process of making this. Now, obviously, we're not going to do that. We found some, some good shortcuts to make it more like my bar food. Now, sumac is very powerful. It's fruity, it, it's sour, and you said they use it by the fistful. So in our recipe, how much do we use? Well, we use at least three tablespoons, actually, which, you know, I mean, in the way that most of us cook, that's still a lot of anything, and especially for a seasoning. But I think, again, it's all about that balance of flavors and the balance of richness versus lightness and the sour and the rich. And so we have tahini in there. And, you know, the chicken is very rich because of both the olive oil and the tahini, and the sumac cuts through all of that. So, so how do you make it? All right, so we're going to start out by browning two pounds of boneless, skinless chicken thighs in a little bit of olive oil, of course. When those are browned after about 10 minutes, you yank them out. Now you're going to brown some onion, some garlic, some chopped pine nuts, and three tablespoons of sumac. And you get this rich mixture going. And then you're going to add three cups of water and bring it to a simmer. When most of the water has evaporated, you're going to throw that chicken back in, mix it all up, you're going to spoon that over warm pita bread, drizzle it with some tahini, maybe even a sprinkle of extra sumac, and you're done. It's amazing. It comes together so quickly. So it's like an hour, maybe. I can do it in half an hour. Because <laughs> you want to have your treat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why wait when it's cocktail time? So sumac chicken, uh, under an hour, an authentic Middle Eastern dish brought back to us by J.M. Hirsch. J.M., thank you very much. You're welcome. You can find our recipe for sumac chicken, my story, and photos of my trip to Ramallah at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. It's time to open our phone lines, call with a complaint, a question, or just to tell us how great we are or not. Give us a ring. That number, of course, is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones. Open up the lines. Let's go. 
Hi, this is Eric Cooter. Hi, Eric. How can we help you? I recently started uh, growing some fresh herbs in my windowsill. I have a huge batch of lemon thyme. Oh, I love lemon thyme. I've got more than I know what to do with. So I'm looking for some ideas and things that I can use this uh, wonderful batch of lemon thyme that I have. What have you already used it on and had success with, just so we can eliminate those things? I've added them to meat dishes. I um, made a wonderful butternut squash soup the other night and added a sprig of that uh, as it simmered to come up to temperature. That's pretty much it. Well, what time? I'd love on vegetables. Like grated carrot salad would be great. I love it on beans. I like it on lentils. I like it on fairly base bland foods. We've got the double whammy here of lemon time. It's quite lemony, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And uh, I, I really like that. Yeah, I, I do too. Florida. I think it's also very nice with eggs, like, you know, in hard boiled eggs or any kind of eggs. It'd be lovely on sliced tomatoes. But anywhere you'd use lemon, you could use lemon thyme. I think you're a, a wealthy man having that in your <laughs> garden. Well, thank you. All right, appreciate it. Yeah, okay, thank pleasure. you. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the phone? Hi, this is Linda. Hi, Linda. How can we help you today? Well, the question had to do with cheesecake. We were working with low-carb cheesecakes with the crust being made out of nuts. So it's gluten-free, low-carb cheesecake. And the problem was the crust was getting soggy, even though we would be putting aluminum foil around the spring pan before we would put it into the water bath. That happens all the time. And I know because this happened to me. I find springform pans go south pretty quickly. You might try a new one. You can also use a big sheet of aluminum foil with a bottom. And so when you put the bottom into the springform pan, the foil gets inserted into that slot and then folds up over the sides of the pan. So you essentially have another wall with aluminum foil, and that can work. But I would suggest dumping the water bath and using a low oven. Oh, that makes sense. We just did a ricotta cheesecake, and we used a little bit of flour in it, which also helped. But very low oven, bake it low and slow, and then use an instant read thermometer if you have one, and don't bake it over 155 or so in the center, because a lot of the cracking that occurs with cheesecake is just over-baking. So try a 275 oven and bake it to 155 in the center. And don't use a water bath and see if that works. My husband found another way of solving the problem. Oh, <laughs> oh right. well, I should be listening to you. Well, yeah, why am really? I talking? You should have told us. Yes. <laughs> uh, so he's the engineer. All right. So the spring pan is 9 inches. And then he bought a separate pan, which is 10 inches. And then he put it in the water bath, which I guess is 11 inches. Problem solved. Well, excellent. We like that, except now you've got three pans instead of Yeah, but two. wait, 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 wait. The conductivity of air is terrible. So water is going to conduct heat evenly around the pan if it's up against the side of the pan. Now you've insulated the pan because it's in a bigger pan, right? So there's air around it? Correct. And that's still baked pretty well? Yes. Well, you don't even need a water bath because if the water's not touching the pan, an oven with no water probably would work as well. Breaks all the rules that we've always learned about cheesecake that was always supposed to be in a water bath. It's great. I love it. And the crust, I personally like more than regular crust because it's, you know, got 
pecans and right. walnuts and. Well, that sounds good. Frankly, I think you didn't need us. <laughs> I think we needed her. I think it sounds good. So. Yes. Yeah, it's really excellent. So thank you so much. You guys win the cheesecake contest. Right. Great job. <laughs> thank you. All right. Take care. Uh-huh, bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is about cooking onions. You know, lots of great recipes start with onions, and it takes 10 minutes or 20 minutes to saute them until they're soft or slightly browned. And that is just a little bit of extra time you probably don't have on a Tuesday night. So here's our suggestion. Cook a really big batch of onions ahead of time, and store them in an airtight container in the fridge, and then you use them anytime you want to jumpstart a meal. Cooked onions will last at least a week in the refrigerator, and also you can freeze them for months. By the way, we sometimes freeze them in ice cube trays, so you can just pop out a few for a last-minute meal. On a recent episode of the Sporkful podcast, host Dan Pashman spoke with author Raul Dahl's daughter about the role food played in their home growing up. And that, of course, made Dan ask the question, what if Willy Wonka was your dad? Dan, how are you? All right, Chris, how are you doing? You know, I sort of think of you as a tour guide, and I never know where the bus is going to go. Well, fasten your seatbelt, Chris, (laughs) because I got a good one for you right now. Okay. Are you a fan of the author Roald Dahl, the man who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? I am, and I actually interviewed his widow uh, a few months ago. Right. So, so... I was very curious to learn about Roald Dahl as a parent. He liked giving candy to his kids, that's for sure. Yeah, he liked taking them into the woods in the middle of the night and giving them candy. What? Yes. He would do a thing called midnight feasts, and he would wake them up in the middle of the night, pack the car full of hot chocolate and candy, and drive them out to the end of their little lane in the English countryside. And they would go out into the woods and look for badgers. And they'd have to be totally, totally quiet and silent and wait. They couldn't move. They couldn't itch, scratch an itch until they saw a badger. And when they saw the badger, then they could go and tuck into their midnight feast and eat cookies and brownies and hot chocolate. And then after eating all that sugar, he would take them home and put them back to bed. <laughs> Which worked out really well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I remember his widow said that he had a box, kind of a cheap box uh, at all times on the dining room table, full of the candies that reminded him of his childhood back in the 40s and 50s. And she also told me that there was a candy shop in his neighborhood, uh, and the woman who run it was kind of scary. So I, I think that's where Charlie and the Chocolate Factory probably came from. Right, right. But he, he actually used food in his parenting strategies in a lot of different ways beyond just sweets. He, he would take quail's eggs and tell his kids that they were Minpin's eggs, Minpin's being characters from another book. He would take duck eggs and say that these were from the BFG, the big friendly giant. He got all his kids to eat red cabbage by saying that it was from the Queen's Garden in Buckingham Palace. (laughs) And then they would have a friend over who'd be like, I don't like red cabbage. And he'd be like, you don't like, but you don't understand. This is special red cabbage. It comes straight from the Queen's Garden at Buckingham Palace. And pretty soon this little kid (laughs) was eating red cabbage like their life depended on it. Well, you know, being a parent of five now, my approach to that was... If they didn't like it, then they didn't have to eat. <laughs> he had a more creative solution to that problem. I, I like his, his answer better. Make up something that's uh, romantic. Right. So w- your overall takeaway was what about Roald Dahl and about his, his love of candy and food? Well, he was certainly a quirky individual. Uh, it certainly gives you a deeper understanding for the way that his creative life, the way his literature was interwoven with his real life and the way that he would, he would actually sort of test out characters 
on his kids, which makes a lot of sense when you're writing for kids. Uh, and I thought that was interesting and also moving to hear. Uh, and then later in that episode of The Sporkful, I, I met up with this guy who has a YouTube channel uh, called Binging with Babish, and he recreates dishes from movies and TV shows. And he and I recreated the giant chocolate cake from Matilda. Oh, yeah. For people who aren't familiar, this is uh, Bruce Bogtrotter, a character in the story of Matilda, is caught stealing the headmistress, Miss Trunchbull's chocolate cake. So as punishment, she makes him eat an entire, like, car tire-sized chocolate cake in front of the entire <laughs> class. It's a great scene in the movie. Yeah. Right, right. And, and and he doesn't think he can do it, and he's too full, but then all the kids start cheering him on, and eventually he does it, and Miss Trunchbull is horrified. But there's a line when Miss Trunchbull presents him with the cake, and it's presented by the, the boarding school cook. Uh, Miss Trunchbull says, the cook's own blood and sweat went into this cake. <laughs> and so actually this guy, uh, Andrew Ray from Binging with Babish, and I put drops of blood and sweat into the chocolate cake that we made in order to make it, because he's very concerned with it being as authentic as possible. And it was delicious. Was it, was it the blood or the sweat? It was just the right ratio. You know, you get um, a little sweetness. You know, you know, you know, Chris, contrast very important in recipes. Was it three drops of blood in the recipe and two drops of sweat? Or how did I think you it, was, it, it was like two drops of sweat, three drops of blood. Uh, it was a big cake, so you couldn't really taste it, but it was delicious. And we had some leftover lancets. Uh, if you need me to send you any lancets to uh, get blood into your latest recipes, Chris. Next time you want to create a recipe from some wonderful piece of children's fiction, uh, call me. All right. Just you're going to need to bleed for the recipe, Chris. No, no, no. You bring the blood and sweat, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, bring, I'll bring the cake flour and the chocolate. All right. Dan Pashman, chocolate cake from Ms. Trunchbull. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Podcast. You know, I once interviewed Dahl's wife, Felicity, about her husband's love of candy. And, you know, who wouldn't want Whipple Scrumptious Fudge Mellow Delight, Everlasting Gobstoppers, or three-course dinner chewing gum? Roald Dahl certainly did. In fact, he kept a box of old-fashioned candies on his dining room table, and, of course, not just for the kids. And that's why Willy Wonka really rings true. In real life, Roald Dahl was the grown-up who served candy with every meal. That's it for this week. If you just tuned in and missed our show, you can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, or order the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks, as always, for listening. And before we go, here's my favorite quote from Roald Dahl. Those who don't believe in magic will never find it. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers, Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer, Amy Padula. Associate producer, Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.